Good morning. Glad you're with us today. Let me share a few things before we have our scripture reading and jump in the lesson. Uh, joy to the world, the Lord has come. December is a special month. We're glad that you are with us today. I was thinking about all the things that has been going on even this week. Uh, we delivered the presents, the Holiday Hope presents, and thank you to everyone who, who worked um, to make that happen. Uh, our ladies had a gift gala on Monday. Our, our children's ministry had supper with Santa on Friday. Uh, tonight we've got Coco and Carol's in the teen center. That starts at 5 o'clock. Uh, you will love to be a part of that. We're going to sing a little bit. We'll fellowship a lot. It'll be a, a great night and I want you to be a part of that. And then uh, this week, uh, our teens will have a special Christmas plus one Wednesday. Um, the homeless outreach that we are going to be uh, a part of for Christmas uh, Eve day and the day after. Um, the registration is open. The details are in the bulletin. One change of plan. Uh, the organizational meeting is this Thursday, but it's going to start at 5 and not 530. Uh, so note that. It'll be at the Carmack building as we partner with them, uh, or you can join on Zoom. Even if you've not signed up yet, but you're interested, you could come to the meeting and just see uh, how that works and how you'd like to be a part of that, or if you uh, want to donate. So again, a, a lot of good things going on. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 7 for our message this morning, and uh, Chris is going to read that chapter as our scripture reading this morning and help us to uh, have a, a good foundation of what the lesson will be about. Chris? Joshua 7 verses 1 through 26. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for, there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of, the, of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sherebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. They have commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. 
Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will give with you no more. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, they are devoted things in your, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought before, brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord shall, that the Lord takes shall come bef- come near my households, and the household of the Lord takes, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man, and he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, the clans of Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zebdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zebdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord of God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now that what, you have, what they have done, do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep, and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Thank you, Chris, for reading that. Uh, I did not want to read all of those. So I, I'd be like David and say, I just mess it all up. And then you all have to give me another shot. Uh, I appreciate that. We've been studying the book of Joshua for several months, and we've been talking about the land of promise and victory and deliverance and breakthroughs. Uh, I think one of the reasons why we love the book of Joshua is it's so many success stories. It's, it's all about winning, but the book of Joshua also shares some stories of defeat, and that's what we see here in chapter 7, and it's important to acknowledge that. 
We're going to look at this too, because I believe in the old saying, you learn more in defeat than you do in victory. And I'm going to caution you, because last week's lesson, this one, and the next week, we're going to wrap this study up. They're not always the easiest things to hear, the easiest things to talk about, but they are very necessary. I really appreciate your encouraging words uh, from last week's message. We were talking about God's justice. Uh, some of our small groups had already dove into that in the weeks prior, uh, and, and that's good. It's good for us to study that. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And that's who we need to be as a church as well, to study, to know the whole counsel of God. And here's why. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it says, Whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that, and get this, through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. So if you endure and you hang on to Scripture, that's a winning combination for hope. That's why we study what the Bible teaches. I want you to lock on that promise and find hope in Joshua chapter 7. Let's study this this morning. It's not the first time we read in Joshua about a pile of stones. But the first pile of stones was after a victory. It's the one by the River Jordan. And we love to remember the good things. In fact, sometimes it's the painful things we don't need to remember, but we remember anyway. You know, the pile of stones there was, was a trophy, if you will, that first pile of stones, because it was the success. You might say the second pile of stone was more like a scar. It's like, well, where did that scar come from? That's what we're talking about this morning. This pile of rocks over Achan's body was quite different, and there was much to learn. Rocks can talk, you know. Even Jesus said the stones cry out. So that's really the question as we study this is, what are the rocks saying? What is the message? What's the takeaway from Joshua chapter 7? Why did God include this story in Scripture for us to have in our Bibles? We need to learn some rock-solid truths. And I want us to point out at least three in our study this morning. Here's the first one. I want us to sure, make sure we get this. God will not allow breakthroughs at the expense of obedience. I hope you already know this about God, or maybe you need to be reminded of this truth about God. God will not allow breakthroughs to keep coming at the expense of obedience, at the expense of a breakdown in purity. The book of Joshua has been just victory after victory after victory. And they seem to learn their lesson from their parents' generation, that generation that, that was not full of faith, and they were called rebels, and they, they would not take God at his word. And so this new generation, they experience breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough. It, they're on a roll here, and we love that in Joshua chapters 1 through 6. But here's something that we need to know about God, who he is, and the way he keeps his covenant. There are two types of covenant. There's a conditional covenant and an unconditional covenant. The, conditional, the unconditional covenant, like he made with Noah, that he would never destroy the earth again, that was unconditional. God said it, he's going to make it happen. The, the uh, covenant he made with Abraham was unconditional. Through your seed, through your people, the whole world would be blessed. God was going to make that happen, and he did. 
But the covenant God made with the children of Israel, the law of Moses, was not unconditional. It was conditional. It's full of ifs. I will be your God if you will obey me and keep my commands. If you keep my commands, then I will bless you. I will take care of you. I will be there for you. But it is a conditional covenant. And we see this going on in chapter 7. That's why, if you look in your Bibles there, chapter 7, verse 1, there's a very key word that it starts with. But. You might want to circle that in your Bibles. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan the son of Carmi took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now, you remember the instructions from chapter 6? We studied this last week. All the gold, the silver, the iron, all those things that were precious were to be confiscated and brought into the Lord's treasury. And everything else was to be burned, to be destroyed. But Achan thought differently, though. When he saw these things, he wanted them for himself. And because of that private, hidden sin, all of Israel paid the price. This is why this story is is troublesome. See, after Jericho, the next up to conquer is the town of Ai. It's a smaller town. The text gives us those details. That's why they said, take two or 3,000 people. You don't need the whole army. It's basically a given. This is not the big fortified city of Jericho. This is a small town. It's as good as done, and so they know that. Yet, all that said, Israel gets routed. Look at the screen again at verses 4 and 5. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people and they fled before the men of Ai and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sherebim and struck them at the descent and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So these 3,000 losing the battle, they're running away. The, the, the army of Ai catches up with them at Sherebim and the hearts of the people. What people? The people of God. See, every, every other time we've, we've read about hearts melting, it was the Canaanites. Their hearts were melting because of God did it again, and God did it again, and God did it again for his people. But now there's a role reversal here. Some commentaries take note that Because of Israel had a breakdown in moral purity, there is a breakdown in obedience. And that's why this breakthrough did not happen. So that leads to a second rock-solid truth I want us to get from this text. When there is no breakthrough, first examine your own character. I wish everyone who is a child of God, everyone who's trying to follow Jesus, would get this from day one. Because sometimes in our exasperation, it's really a a, a lack of understanding who God is and, and how he operates. So we need to get this. When there is no breakthrough, first examine your own character. Before you criticize God, before you ask God, where are you? Or why did you let this happen? First things first is you look inward. What's so alarming about this story is that Joshua and the elders of Israel did not understand this about God. Look at verse 7. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all and give us in the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we be content to dwell beyond the Jordan. 
As you read that, does that sound like what the previous generation would say? We'd be better off in Israel. We had it, I mean, in, e in Egypt. We, we had it good there. Remember that complaint? Again and again they would say to Moses. Is that not similar to what Joshua was saying here? We'd be better off had we never crossed the Jordan. That was the good land. We could have just stayed there. And then Joshua goes even further. Verses 8 and 9. Oh, Lord, what can we say? When the Israel had turned their backs before their enemies, turned their backs means runs away, when they ran away from the enemy. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So Joshua, the leader of God's people, first he's saying, God, what's the deal? Why did you let this happen? And then he's putting God's own reputation into the mix here. What about your reputation, God? What are you going to do to make this right? So how does God respond? God would not have it. Look in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? That's not what you want to hear from God. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? You think, well, that's a sign of respect. That's a sign of, uh, of humility. He, he's asking all the right questions, right? Wrong. And God corrects him. It's as if God expected more of Joshua and the leaders of his people than this. God expected the leaders to be more in tune with who God is and how God operates. And God does not put up with Joshua's line of questioning at all. But you have a major correction going on here. And God spells it out for Joshua. The problem is not with God. The problem is with Israel. It's within the camp. Look at verse 11. Look at all those circled words there. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. So catch this. Joshua is asking why did you, and what are you going to do about it to God? And God says, I'm not the one in the wrong here. Israel is. God is saying, I want to make sure we get this. Don't ask me what I'm doing. You look a little closer at your own people. Joshua is questioning uh, God's character. And God won't have it. God's saying, I'm not the problem. Israel is the problem. Israel is defeated, not because God was unable, and not really because God left them. It's really that they left God. They were defeated because Israel was no longer obedient, no longer pure. So Joshua's first impulse is to question God's faithfulness. God, where are you? Why did you leave us? What have you done? But what he finds out here, it's a matter of Israel's unfaithfulness. God was not about to grant his people breakthrough when they had turned their backs on him. So the first consequence of their being sent in the camp, and I'll make sure we get this, is for God to remove his presence. Before the judgment are some consequences. Before you reap what you sow, before you suffer the punishment or the effects of your sin, the first consequence is God's not there. When you choose sin, you have abandoned God. You have left him. And we learn from Joshua chapter 7 that God can withdraw his presence and you may not even realize it. 
don't you just kind of notice what's going on here? What we can gather from the text. Evidently, the army of God had no idea that God was not with them. So what does that tell us? Evidently, the presence of God was not a, a tingling sensation when he was there, and then it ceased when he left. We don't read any detail about an aura above their heads that had dissipated, and they just hadn't noticed. They were not relying on emotions or feelings to determine that God's presence was with them. There's none of that. They seem to have no clue that they, why they were defeated, even Joshua and the elders. Oh God, what happened? Why have you abandoned us? But remember, the reason they took Jericho and were so successful is that God was with them. Remember, we studied that. The ark of the Lord went before them as they marched around. The very presence of God was key to their victory. God was with them, and they took the city, and the walls came down. Now, up to this point, God had remained true to his covenant to be with them as they obey him. But when Achan disobeyed, when Achan disobeyed, God withdrew his presence. He will not abide sin. Look how God explained it to them very, very succinctly. Verse 12. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs. They run away before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. Remember we talked about that last week. And then he says, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. This is so important to understand. This is why when you choose to participate and say that the sins of the flesh, you're turning from God and you're choosing what God calls evil. You become one with evil. You become sin. That's how the Bible describes it. And God withdraws from evil. He cannot go with you. When you choose to cross over that line, he's not going to go with you. God's character never changes. He is a holy God, and he will, he will let you choose, but he will not go with you. Hebrews 10, 26 says it very plainly. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. He told them, I will be with you no more. But what about the saying, God hates sin, but loves the sinner? You've heard that? Have you said that? Is that true? Is that scriptural? Well, the Bible does tell us the love of God is constant. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. But loving and, and accepting your willful sin, it's not the same thing. When a person intentionally chooses to be one with sin, you're choosing sin over God. It's your choice. You're the one who's left, period. So God lets you choose. He gives you that freedom. He lets you do that. You can willfully turn your back on him and choose sin. But he will not go with you. He does not go with you because a holy God cannot be a part of that. So Israel's victory at Jericho teaches us that when God is with you, it makes no difference how big the enemy is, you're going to be successful. It can be defeated. And Israel's defeat at Ai teaches us that when God is not with you, it doesn't matter how small the enemy may be. 
it can take you down. So when you find yourself defeated, don't question God's character. Don't ask him where he is. You first look inward and see where the problem may lie. And that leads to the third solid rock principle. We win and lose more communally than individually. Now, our salvation is a personal thing. We, we know that. But we also need to understand this truth because this is in the very fabric of our universe. And we see it in so many concepts. It, it's kind of deep and, 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 and maybe even, even heavy, but it's true. It's true spiritually. It's just true in life. And what's troubling to me about this passage is not only did Israel suffer defeat as a nation, 36 men died. 36 men who did not steal. They did not have things buried under their tent. All because Achan's sin. God withdrew and all the people suffered. The nation suffered defeat as one man. Is that fair? Is that right? Why would God respond in that way? Is that how God works? We need to ask these questions and we need to answer these questions. Now, some commentaries explain that God didn't completely withdraw his presence because only 36 men died of the 3,000. But if that's your husband, if that's your dad, that didn't hold water because they're not the ones who stole the devoted things. If there's anything that the story reminds me is this, no matter how secret you think your sin may be, its effects will not be secret. In fact, the Bible tells us it will be found out. One author described it like the ripple effect on the water. Those closest to you are going to feel it the most. But think about it on the flip side, too. Just that there are times where a large group of people will, will suffer but negative consequences because of the actions of a few. Is not the converse of that also true? There are times when large groups of people will reap the benefits because of the actions of just a few or maybe even just one. Let me give you two examples to think about. We get to enjoy freedom, democracy, voting, incredible opportunities, not because... We stood up to tyranny 250 years ago, not because we signed the Declaration of Independence, not because we fought in the war, yet we live with all those benefits to this day. A large number of people win communally because of the actions of a few. Bring it closer to home. We are sitting in a beautiful building that about 100 years ago a group of Christians that were meeting on High Street. Do you know where the old building on High Street, the, the, the Pope Presidential Hall, that small building, those people were full of faith realizing we need to make a big step. So they bought the property. They built the structure. Some of them physically helped to build it. They paid for it. You and I didn't build it. You and I didn't pay for it, yet we reaped the benefits. A hundred years later, we're sitting and what they did. The truth is we're blessed today because of the decisions of a few yesterday. We win and lose more communally than we do individually. Now, 
this truth perhaps is most ultimately seen in our own salvation. Let me share two scriptures. Romans chapter 5. You could read the whole chapter. In fact, you really should. So go home and read that, or especially next week when we do small groups, we're going to jump into chapter 5 a little bit more. But look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Have you thought about that? Because of one man, sin entered the world through one person. Do you ever see your social media feed or something and you think, they are so listening to me? Because something will pop up, maybe a product you're talking about or something. I saw a meme this week, and, and it was a lady who, who showed that when you get to heaven and she's meeting all the, the great people of faith in heaven, and, and, and she gets to meet Adam and Eve, and what does she say? Thanks a lot. Does that strike you as funny as it does me? But that's what the Bible is teaching us here. But keep reading in Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to, to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. You and I may be able to hide a sin, but we cannot hide its effects. Do you believe that? Is that true? What about 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7? Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Likewise, husbands, live in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. Your sin, no matter how private, has a ripple effect. It's true. Does that not tell us, this passage, that we cannot hide our sin? The sin of Achan is not just some obscure story in the Old Testament. Remember, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. So that through endurance and just reading, hanging on to these scriptures, we may have hope. But this goes against our American way of thinking. Our independent way of thinking. You can't tell me what to do. It's my body. It's my choice. I want to do it my own way. I'm not your boss. We are so independent in our thinking. But the reality is, no matter your beliefs, no matter your nationality, no matter what decade you may live in, this is an eternal truth that we are part of a, a complex, interrelated web. And throughout life, you and I win and lose more communally than individually. This story is challenging to me because I think about what it's teaching us here. How much is my wife negatively affected because of my sin? Or my children? Or what about this church? What, they, what about some of our leaders? You know, Joshua and all the elders of, of the city, they, they were coming out the wrong way. What if there is a wrong thinking, sin problem in one of our leaders? Is that holding our church back? See, the lesson from Joshua 7 is that when there's no breakthrough, the problem is not God. The problem is not God. It's our own. What have I hidden in my own heart? 
What is it that I'm doing? And we must be brave enough to admit, even question ourselves. Remember David? When David made his great sin? Actually, I should say great sins. He was so unaware. And yet when he was, came to his senses, you might say, he, he realized what he had done. And that's why we love David. Not because of his mistakes, but because of his heart. The heart for God that he would turn to God and pray. Look at Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That takes courage. That takes a lot of courage. God examined my heart. Can you pray that prayer? In fact, I want to challenge you to pray that prayer. Will you say it aloud with me? It's on the screen. Pray it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. What a prayer. Folks, I think we need to do that constantly. Because God knows. You know who we are good, best at deceiving? Ourselves. We are experts. And we do it all the time. And maybe second to that is fooling others. But we never deceive God. Did you notice how methodically God had the people to identify the problem? Did you notice how he did that tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, man by man? God knew who it was all along. Why didn't God say, Aiken's the man, bring him front and center? He didn't do that, did he? He goes through this, really an ordeal. Can you imagine the, the whole tribe coming forth? The whole clan, all of that getting smaller and smaller each time? That's a lot of movement, a lot of trouble. Was that God's grace period? Remember we talked about that last week? Was he giving Aiken some time going, okay, this is a big deal. I was an expert parent until my first child was born. Any of you in that camp? Marcy and Emily Jake, when we were living in Coleman, they were probably elementary age, um, and someone came and knocked on our door, and it was our, um, it was a really small block. Um, there were like four houses. It was that small, and so all our backyards kind of uh, touched. And so our catty corner neighbor, and they were all wonderful people, but um, they had a, a white truck, a new white pickup truck, and it had rained a lot, kind of like we've had, and mud was everywhere, and some children had taken their hands in the mud and just wiped it all over the truck and did art and wrote things or whatever, and so... the. The, the folks were like, okay, you know, it's just a truck, but we need to get to the bottom of this. And so they're going around to all the neighbors saying, hey, do you know, you know, could y'all see across the way who it might be? And do you know what I said? I said, I know there's some, some families that are a couple of blocks over, and they've got some kids. I, I don't know them very well. You might check with some of them. And our kids were listening, and, 
you're ahead of me. But Sia was explaining, you know, what happened, and, and Sia very wisely said, they will find out who did it. And Marcy heard that. And she said, how will they find out? <laughs> and Sia said, well, they'll just find out. And Marcy came clean. It was my child. Parents learn from my stupidity. Whenever there's something going on, don't blame it on somebody else's kids. God taught me that lesson. And I learned, first look in your own house. I tell you that with shame. Because there's something about his parents. They're not my kids. Somebody else's kids. They're the problem. No. It's in our own house. Achan had time. He saw this coming. I share all this and say, well, wait a minute. He did confess, didn't he? Joshua asked him, tell me, my son, what did you do? And Achan confessed. But go back and read it again. It was late and it was forced. You know, when you ask your child, did you get a cookie? And they've got a little crumb right there. You know, it's just a little too late. You know, he had plenty of time to come clean, but he did not. There will come a time when it's too late. And the good news of the gospel is somebody has already offered the penalty for you having things buried under your tent. John opened his gospel with a very descriptive introduction about Jesus. I love John chapter 1, and it's so different than the other Gospels. You know, the other Gospels, and we love them in a different way because they tell us the details of Jesus' birth. They tell us about the nativity, and we love, and we hang on to every detail because we want to know what happened. But John doesn't do that. In fact, John doesn't use the image of the manger at all. John uses the image of a tent. John 1.14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I'm talking about that word dwelt. The word came flesh and dwelt among us. If you look up that Hebrew word, it means to have one's tent. It means to dwell in a tent. It means to pitch your tent. Another name for tabernacle. When the Old Testament was the big tent. That's the same word here. The Lord came, if you will, and pitched his tent among us. He made his dwelling. And you know the beautiful thing about this whole story is? Jesus has nothing buried under his tent. It's a perfect tent. And that's what made it possible for him to take on your sin debt and your condemnation. So Jesus came in the flesh, pitched his tent with nothing to hide, and then he comes to you and says, come stand in front of my tent. You come and stand in front of my tent, and I'll take your place and stand in front of your tent. And all of my righteousness will be credited to you. And I'll take your judgment. I'll take the penalty for what you've buried in your tent. I'll allow God to treat me as though I'm the one who committed the crime. God's perfect justice. We talked about that last week, remember? 
God's perfect justice demands that someone pay the penalty. And God put in all of us that sense of justice. We don't like it when somebody gets off scot-free. We appreciate when justice is done. And that means somebody. Someone has to take responsibility for your bitterness. Someone has to take the rap for your hatred and your unforgiveness and your lust and your greed. Someone has to pay the price for your gossip and your idolatry, your selfishness and your ingratitude. All of it. There is no brushing it under the rug. That's why the cross had to be so brutal. Everybody loves Jesus in a manger. He's the baby. It's hard. It's hard to read the details about his cruel death. But that's the story of the gospel. Here's the good news. John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus, the righteous one, wants to give you his righteousness. But it's your choice. We're going to stand and sing this song to encourage you to choose Jesus. Won't you come and stand while we stand and sing? Oh, oh.